The peace of Christ be with you. As you settle into your seat, give yourselves about three deep breaths to be settled into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sisters and brothers, visitors and friends, let us worship the living God. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Let us give thanks for the goodness of God. Let us listen for what the Spirit will say today. Let us worship God. You may be seated. Welcome. Welcome to Westminster. Welcome to worship this morning. If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. I invite you after worship into our Finley Hall and garden area for a time of coffee and tea, a chance to get to know each other a little better. And today we have a special wedding reception in honor of our choir director, Ruthie and Clark, who got married yesterday. So you're all invited to that after worship. Let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. Ours is an imperfect world, O God. Favoritism, jealousy, vengefulness, threatened human relationship. We long for the strength to stand against what hurts our neighbors as we acknowledge how easy it is we seek the courage to act with integrity, even when it comes with uneasy consequences. We trust that others, too, seek the good, 
and strive to look for the light-hearted. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Friends, following in God's way of love and compassion is not always easy, but know that God walks with us every step of the way. And when we do go astray, know that God forgives us and brings us back to God's way of love. This is good news. Amen. Now I'd like to invite any children who are worshiping with us to come join Jeff here at the front. show you a couple pictures of a friend of mine, but first I want to tell you about how we met. When I was in seventh grade, 20-some years ago, that means I'm 37, you're trying to do math, I, my school zone changed, and so I had to go to a different school, and I didn't really know many people. Do you remember going, how many of you go to kindergarten or have been to kindergarten before? can be scary when you go and you don't know anybody. And you know what the hardest part about middle school is? Let me tell you, lunch is the scariest part to middle school. Because that's when you find out who your friends are. And I didn't really have many friends because I was at kind of a new school. This is my timer right here. (laughs) And so I made a new friend that day and his name is Jamal. And he was so nice to me, he let me sit with him, and we sat together and ate lunch every day for the rest of the year, and we are still friends for 20-some years later. Here, let me show you a picture of us. We've been friends for so long, he was in my wedding. That's me right there, and that's him standing right next to me. He is such a good friend of mine that after 20 years, he stood right next to me when I got married. And guess what? He got married, that's Jen and my cat, but he got married, and guess who did his wedding? Who is that? That's, that's me, just daddy to two of you. But yeah, that's me. 20 years later, after being my friend, when I didn't really have any friends, we are still friends. He means a lot to me, and I think I mean a lot to him. Well, there was this guy in the Bible, and he had a funny-sounding name. His name was Zacchaeus. Can you say Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus. And he was kind of like me. He didn't have very many friends. He may not have had any friends. And he was short, he was small, and there were a lot of things about him. And, you know, it wasn't because he had a weird name, and it wasn't because he was short. I wonder why he didn't have many friends. And if he didn't have many friends, do you think Jesus might be his friend? Well, I guess we'll find out. (laughs) So let's go to our class and we'll find out what Jesus did with Zacchaeus when he met. (laughs) 
So if you're new or visiting, our younger kids are going with Cindy. Our middle schoolers are invited to go with Jeff for Sunday school, or you're also welcome to stay in here and worship. I love the cliffhanger. Ask your kids, if you have kids, what happened. So this is the time in our worship where we share with each other, share our joys and our concerns so that we can be in prayer for and with each other. So if you have something to share, I invite you to just raise your hand and let us know. Yeah, Meg. Oh, no. Niece Maureen, who took a bad fall and is now having a second surgery on her foot. Yeah, Florence. So Florence uh, voicing her concerns about the events over the weekend in Charlottesville, uh, especially the car that plowed into the crowd. Um, In fact, our National Presbyterian Disaster Assistance Organization um, has written and sent out a prayer specifically about the events in Charlottesville, but also just about all the hatred and racism and violence that we're experiencing in different ways in our country. And after we share our joys and concerns, I'm going to share some pieces of that prayer with you. It certainly is important for us all. Thank you, Florence. Other joys or concerns? Yeah. Valerie. So Valerie sharing that she got to spend some quality time with one of her boys, Cole, in Cooperstown, and just really the joy of seeing all these boys playing baseball and just accepting each other and playing with each other and enjoying their time as young men. Other joys or concerns? Yeah, Elizabeth. Absolutely. So Elizabeth offers prayers for her husband, Carl, who was hospitalized with COPD and now is going to be at a rehab center for a while as he recovers. Yeah, Mildy. Prayers for a friend who has had some treatment for cancer and is now in God's hands. Prayers for her. And they just walked in. Prayers for Ruthie and Clark. 
the now married couple as of yesterday, and as I mentioned earlier, you are invited to a reception in their honor after worship. And I also want to lift up Marcia Schatz and Bob Gould, who will be married this afternoon. So prayers of joy for Marcia and Bob as well. All right. Behind me. Patrice is here. Yeah. Yeah. So, Patrice, a member of our congregation who has moved to Southern California but is back this weekend. Welcome. And then thank you, Eric, for remembering prayers for the Korean Peninsula as well. Anyone else? All right. Oh, yeah, Sherry. That's right. Both of our seminarians here worshiping with us today, which is awesome. Brooke, welcome back after an internship last year. And uh, continuing prayers as your studies begin again. Yes, Mary. Welcome. Joy of a good friend visiting. Let's have a few moments of quiet as we hold all of these prayers in our hearts and minds. And then as I mentioned, I'm going to share a prayer from the Presbyterian Disaster Assistance Organization. So let us pray. God of justice, who sees into the hearts of all, your light outshines the torches of hatred Your goodness is greater than evil. Your love compels us to break the silence, to speak the truth, and to confess our sin. In the face of this continuing unraveling of the fabric of our common life, may we have ears to hear the stories of our neighbors, the respect to wait and listen as each story is told in its own voice. May we find the courage to acknowledge our privilege and our complicity in the evils of racism and not to cease our striving for equality until justice rolls down like waters. Our shoulders are bowed beneath the weight of our sorrow. Our hearts cry for a peace that seems so far off. We pray for a way forward for all of your children, a way beyond racism and violence and privilege, for the courage to change ourselves and our land, for faith and action that can bind us together. We pray for comfort for families who now grieve unbearable losses, for individuals who are wounded and broken in body or spirit, May your spirit rise with healing in its wings and bring strength and wholeness to each. We pray for ourselves that this hurt will not fade from our minds before our hearts are broken open with your passion for justice, mercy, and love. Show up among us in our cities, our neighbors, and our weary, worried hearts 
a justice beyond hope, a peace that passes understanding, Emmanuel, God with us. In the name of your broken and resurrected Son, Jesus, hear us now as we pray the prayer he taught, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day.
you very much. Okay, the first scripture reading is Genesis 37, 1 through 4. Please listen for what the Spirit is saying to us. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, I think I'll wait. Okay, thank you. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. This is holy wisdom, holy word. The second reading continues the story of the first, picking up just a few verses later in Genesis 37. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and found a man, and a man, excuse me, found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. This, too, is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. As the summer begins to dry, yeah, my expression exactly, Joan makes about this story. 
As the summer draws to a close, begins to draw to a close, so too does our road trip with this set of characters from Genesis come to an end. We've been traveling with this crew for several weeks now, you may know. And we were there when Jacob and Esau, siblings, wrestled in the womb. And when they emerged, Jacob grew up to steal his brother's birthright or trick himself into it, trick his brother into giving it up. We were there later as Jacob sought a bride and the trickster had the tables turned on him because the night of his marriage, the woman was switched for her sister. And all in all, Jacob had to wait 14 years for his wife. We were there for another wrestling match, this time between Jacob and a heavenly being in which the heavenly being leaves a mark on Jacob and and ultimately Jacob is renamed Israel, one who has wrestled with God. And we were there and stood awestruck at this unbelievable reunion between who was Jacob and Esau and the reconciliation that took place in the ceasefire between the two that ensued. Those episodes carry with them the fullness of human behavior. Jealousy, favoritism, trickery, also loyalty, creativity, fierceness, passion, forgiveness. Reconciliation, it's all there. Well, today, the next generation occupies the stage and the picture continues to unfold in all its messiness. Israel, living out of his childhood, as so many of us do, plays favoritism with his kids. The apple doesn't far fall from the tree and favors the young Joseph, this dreamer, And not surprisingly, this breeds resentment among Joseph's brothers. So much so that when Joseph comes to check on them, they conspire to kill him. Kill him and throw him in the pit and then blame it on wild animals. And that's when Reuben steps in, one of the brothers, and says, no, 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 let us not shed blood. Let's just throw him in the pit and leave him. It's a strange moment, but, but it's a crafty intervention, is it not? Uh, it's an imperfect situation, and perhaps Reuben does the best he can, and he, he staves off death. I mean, he sort of splices the morality, and he comes up with a solution that says, look, don't actively kill him. You can still have your vengeance, but then you don't have the blood dripping on your hands. And maybe, just maybe, he thinks Joseph will survive. In fact, maybe he'll return and set him free. And miraculously, Joseph survives. So maybe Reuben knew what he was doing after all. How many times do we find ourselves in precarious ethical circumstances? in whatever realm. And we know what we would like to do, but that's easier to think about than it is to actually do it. And so while our behavior doesn't 
feel clean and it doesn't live up to our ideals or our dreams. It's the best we can manage. And it does a little bit of good and it, uh, it passes the bar that our consciences hold up. And at the end of the day, look, we've got our own livelihood to look after as well. So we make the best we can of an imperfect situation. And we do all that's reasonably to be expected of us. Alan Bosek preaches a powerful sermon on this passage, and he calls that choice, that way of being, the Reuben option. Do the best you can in the middle of a messy situation. The Reuben option. And you might think that Bosek goes on to justify um, and support the Reuben option. But nothing could be further from the truth. He essentially calls it rubbish. You see, Bosak, as I've mentioned in here before, was an anti-apartheid activist in South Africa, a black African. Clergy in the Dutch Reformed Church, and Bosak had seen all too many times his own beloved church just tinker around the edges of that system rather than call it for what it was, evil. State-sponsored racism, state-sponsored oppression. And he saw all too often that church compromising with that system. The Reuben option. Well, we've, we've seen it in our own land, too, in the civil rights movement here. A good number of white churches in certain parts of the country, maybe in all parts of the country, didn't want to join in, argued for incremental change instead, not so fast, let's not make so many waves. It's easy to argue for slow change when you're not the one suffering. And it was that type of inaction of moral compromise that led Martin Luther King to resound, now is the time, not then, now is the time, not one day, now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the time. Elsewhere, Dr. King reminded us that the time is always right to do the right thing. It's always the right time to do the right thing. Compromise is a good thing. It seems to me it's a lost art, actually. And we would do well to relearn that art but not this kind of compromise, not the kind of compromise that trades the God-given rights and God-ordained justice of some peoples for the comfort of others, for not wanting to make waves or experience all that comes with working for change. That's not compromise. That's not righteous compromise. That's not craftiness. That's spiritual and theological confusion. That's functional rebuking of Jesus. Because Jesus never shied away from calling out hypocrisy when he saw it. Jesus never shied away from seeing what was evil and naming it as such. When Bosak spoke about his own beloved church, he recognized that 
The church knew what it needed to do. It just had trouble doing it. He said this, this I think is the agony of the church. So he recognized the pain. We know what we should be doing, but we lack the courage to do it. We feel we ought to do it, and we cannot. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul there. Bosak continues, we are afraid to make choices, so we are constantly on the lookout for compromises. We're paralyzed by the need to be all things to all people, to be a church where all feel welcome all the time, and so we sacrifice on both altars. We stand accused by a history of compromises, always made for the sake of survival. He's talking about the survival of the church here. Because after all, if one sells out the gospel, then what you have left is not a church. It might be a spa, it might be a social club, both of which are good things, but neither of which is the church of Jesus Christ. And churches are obsessed often with their own survival, perpetuating their own existence as an organization. But that's not faithful to the gospel to which they're called. In fact, in the foundations of our Constitution, there's a section, the foundations of Presbyterian polity. And in there, there's a line that says, the church is called to its mission, quote, even at the sake of losing its own life. I mean, after all, what's, what's really preserved in the Reuben option? Even from Reuben's perspective, when he makes his choice, what is he really avoiding? For all he knows, Joseph's still going to die in the pit. The only thing he's avoiding for sure is his brother's guilt, not his brother's murder. We should be careful who we applaud in such morally dubious circumstances. This is how Bosak describes the Reuben option. Take a stand, but always cover yourself. The problem cannot be ignored, so let us do something about it, but always in a way that it does not hurt us too much. Take a stand. Use the right words and resolutions taken by the Synod and the General Assembly. He's speaking of the church again. But also make sure that you build into those resolutions all the necessary safeguards just in case. Don't antagonize people too much especially those in the church who have money. <laughs> oh, you laugh. This is how pastors work. I'm not kidding. Opt for peace, but don't confuse that with justice. In other words, stay away from justice. That's the Reuben option. Now, Bosak's concern is the church, but we can certainly expand that to other realms in our own lives, I assume. Places in, in which we're faced with such choices and we're not sure we can make them. I mean, I know when I put myself in Reuben's shoes, I'm not sure I could even do what he did. It's hard, hard stuff. But my experience is that people can handle hard truths. They prefer them, actually, as long as they're spoken with clarity. And Bosak gives us utter clarity 
in this moment. And that kind of clarity gives us the grounding on which we can stand so we can support one another. By myself, I am hardly brave. I'm certainly no hero. But with you all and with other faithful sisters and brothers, I can choose differently. And all of us can. I know there are people in this congregation who on a daily basis have to figure out how to make the right choices within companies, workplaces, where the ethics are swimming the other way. Daily. I can't imagine what it's like to work in that kind of a setting. So let those people hear loud and clear from us that their church is with them. That we stand by them and we'll support them when they make those difficult choices, come what may. That not just that God walks with them, but we walk with them too. And others of you, I know, have to say and do difficult things to family members in the name of righteousness. Family members. Let those people hear that this church will be your family if yours casts you off. That will be your rear guard. We'll have you over for Thanksgiving if no one else will. I think this is why Jesus, when he sends out his disciples, you remember how he sends them out? Two by two. Like a little Noah's Ark. He does that for a couple reasons, I gather. The first is so that nobody has to feel like they face this world alone. And that nobody is alone. Occasionally, some brave person stands up by themselves, but you don't have to. You're always going to have a partner out there. And secondly, because Jesus is reminding us that we're not here to tinker around the edges of a broken and a corrupt system. We're here to usher in to an entire new reality. It is a new creation, like the flood that baptized the world and got rid of of desolation and of violence and of mistreatment of one another so that a new creation could be reborn. Jesus Christ is like an ark. And in him, we are delivered to a new kind of dry ground and a peaceable kingdom. So let the stories of the church be our courage so that we can support one another or be our cautionary tales so we can make our choices accordingly. Ever told you a story about Erskine Clark? can't believe I've never told you about Erskine Clark. Dr. Clark, we would call him in seminary. Dr. Clark, we wouldn't use the R. He was a southern gentleman. Very genteel man. He, he was not flashy, rarely raised his voice. I'm not sure he ever moved, but you could listen to him for hours. He was a professor of Presbyterian history, and the semester I took Presbyterian history in polity, he was in the midst of a research project uh, for the book called Dwelling Place, a plantation epic. And Dwelling Place was about a man named Charles Colcock Jones, a Presbyterian pastor who had come to the South, actually spent some time at Columbia Seminary when it was not in Atlanta before it moved. And he found as his calling to be a missionary to the slaves. And he came into that with all kinds of ideals. And in the midst of it, he he felt moved to do the best he could to improve the conditions of slaves. He was a slave owner himself. 
but work to make that a more humane situation. And I remember the day that Dr. Clark was lecturing on his research. And he, he looked at us and he said, over the years, he'd been teaching 30 or 40 years at Columbia, I've seen so many students come to this seminary wide-eyed, on fire in their faith, ready to take on the world and all of its injustices in the name of Jesus Christ. And you could almost hear us, hear him call us naive. And I thought for sure the next word out of his mouth was going to be something about, well, the world is more complicated than that. And the problems of this world are a little bigger than your little idealism can handle. And sometimes, with all due respect, the best you can do is get your hands dirty and do the best you can in the midst of an imperfect situation and live to fight another day because the church needs to survive. And that's not what Dr. Clark said. He looked at us and said, don't you ever lose it. Don't you ever forget the gospel of Jesus that called you to this place and the clarity that it lays out before you. And don't you be afraid to stand up even when it's unpopular to do so and to call evil what is evil and wrong what is wrong. Don't do what Charles Colcock Jones did, which is take the Reuben option. Because you'll be kidding yourself that you're preserving any kind of integrity in the church when you throw the values of Jesus into the pit to pick up another day. That's powerful. That's scary. We can talk ourselves into a lot of things it's okay to do this, and it's okay to wait to do that, and it's, and it's okay to not do any of this. All kinds of compromises we can talk ourselves into. But all that does is assuage our guilt and land a sister or a brother in a pit. Let's learn and let's practice talking each other out of that instead and into choosing differently, and into behaving differently. Because as Alan Bosak says in the concluding line of his sermon, the chosen will be known by their choices. Amen.
You may be seated. I invite you to take a look at your bulletin of all the uh, opportunities that are listed here, classes, events, activities. We are starting to list some opportunities coming up in the fall in September, including some new small groups and classes, so I invite you to take a look at this. It is also the time of year where Cindy, our Sunday School coordinator, is signing up folks to teach Sunday School in the fall. We have a great, great group of volunteers for our first through third graders, but are still looking for those interested in teaching our youngest kids and our fourth and fifth graders. A great opportunity. You don't have to be a parent. Chris Hawley and Sandy Smith, who have children grown and out of the house, are some of our wonderful Sunday school teachers. So think about it if that's an opportunity that is calling to you. If you just want to find out a little more about it, we have a training, a safe church training on August 27th. You can come and learn what, it, what we do to keep our kids safe and then a little bit more about teaching. So questions, see me, see Cindy. I invite you now to stand as you are able for a closing hymn. It's number 700, and you'll note the hymn is fairly repetitive. Uh, it changes just a couple of words per, ver- per verse. So towards the end of the hymn, if you want to put down your hymnal and just sing from your heart, you are invited to do so. Let's join together. head greeter just notified me that we're eight minutes early and he said just you should talk for a while. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, The announcement is that Ruthie and Clark would very much like as you join them for the celebration to make sure to sign the guest book so they might have record of your 
presence and celebration with them. And these are tense times in our world. No better reason than to celebrate the beauty and the love that is in our midst. And there is no more precious symbol of that than that lovely couple that is waiting to receive you in the narthex. So in the name of Christ, let us celebrate with our sister and brother in this marriage. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is father and mother of all of us, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.